Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, with tireless devotion to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. If, dear friend, the content here that you find is enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel. Here on Finneran's Wake, we're trying to build a community of curious thinkers and fearless speakers, among whom I can assure you most certainly belong. And for content specific to wellness, literature, philosophy, poetry, meditation, and sleep, you can, of course, visit my sister project, Numa by Daniel Finneran, to which I'll include a link in the show notes below. My guest today, with whom I'm absolutely honored and delighted to have the opportunity to speak, is Randy Tarabarelli. Randy is an author, editor, reporter, journalist, and biographer whose two dozen books and countless articles could and probably should occupy the entirety of your bookshelf. In fact, uh, to accommodate all your heavy books, Randy, I'm preparing to refurnish my apartment and dedicate an entire Tarabarelli wall. Uh, some of his more popular works include Madonna, an intimate biography, Jackie, Janet, and Lee, The Hiltons, Sinatra, Michael Jackson, Becoming Beyonce, Cher, Diana, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe, and his latest work, Jackie, Public, Private, Secret, of which I very strongly urge you all to obtain a copy, as I did to my everlasting delight a few weeks ago. Having read three of Randy's books, I can say with confidence that if you want to know the culture of America, her history, and where she might be going, Randy's books must be a part of your education, an indispensable part, in fact. With that, Randy, I thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. It's good to be here, Dan. Thank you. Uh, I have to say that uh, the way that you say my last name is absolutely perfect. And it's so unusual for me to hear it done so perfectly. So <laughs> thank you for that. Tara Borelli is not the easiest last name to, uh, to pronounce. With all, you know, those polysyllabic Italian last names can twist up the tongue. But uh, as I told you before we started recording, I hail from Southern New Jersey, you know, a heavily Italian American influenced area. So you should see the names of my graduating class from high school. Tara Borelli is nothing. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I love that. That's cool. So, Randy, your high stature as a biographer, I think, is undisputed. And yet there is one biographer of whose greatness you fall just a hair short, and that is Plutarch, Greek historian of the first century AD, whose parallel lives of the Greeks and Romans is never far out of reach. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read a brief passage from his entry on Antony, Mark Antony. I want you to tell me if you think his description of a certain unnamed Egyptian royal woman couldn't be applied to the subject of your latest chart-topping book, Jackie Kennedy. According to my sources, Plutarch says, in itself, her beauty was not absolutely without parallel, not the kind to astonish those who saw her, 
but her presence exerted an inevitable fascination and her physical attractions combined with the persuasive charm of her conversation and the aura she somehow projected around herself in company did have a certain ability to stimulate others. The sound of her voice was also charming and she had a facility with languages that enabled her to turn her tongue like a many stringed instrument to any language she wanted with the result that it was extremely rare for her to need a translator in her meetings with foreigners. Tell me, Randy, what do you think? Could Plutarch not be talking about Jackie Kennedy? That's actually uncanny, you know, um, that description so perfectly fits Jackie. Um, and I mean, I, I can't believe that I didn't write that <laughs> because <laughs> it is so good. And it's so, it's so right, you know, that she, Jackie uh, had a quality that was this sort of ineffable quality that people, well, I mean, her half-brother, Jamie Auchincloss, said something to me once when I was asking him to uh, sort of describe Jackie. And he said, my half-sister is like electricity you know it's there you just don't know why or how it works right and that that really struck me because you know she 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 was uh so enigmatic and so complicated but yet at her core so relatable and that's what i i most um felt so strongly about as i was writing about her is that as, as iconic as she was, she was just that much human. You know, the humanity of Jackie is, I think, what people um, appreciate in my book. Yeah. But that, that quote, that quote is in, I, I gotta, you gotta send me that quote because I, I need to frame that. That, that is, that says it all right there. I'm and I'm very and I'm very jealous that I didn't write that. <laughs> I most certainly will. And don't be jealous. I mean, this was written in the like I said, the first century AD, you know, a very very long time ago. And I don't mean to sound pedantic, but I I was reading your book, uh, you know, Jack, your latest book, Jackie, and immediately my mind went back to that passage from Plutarch because we all associate. And of course, he's talking about Cleopatra the seventh and. You know, we all associate her as this, oh, I don't know, outstanding, otherworldly beauty. And that's largely a consequence of those who have played her on the silver screen and the way she's been depicted in the popular culture. Um, but if you go back to the, the sources, she wasn't, you know, um, overwhelmingly gorgeous, but she did have a certain uh, peculiarity about her that was almost, like you said, ineffable and um, undefinable. And I, I sense that in the way in which you describe uh, Jackie Kennedy. So on that point, what is it about Jackie that is not only to you, but to so many Americans across time, so alluring? Uh, is it a single quality or, or perhaps a list of qualities to which you can give words? Or as you kind of hinted, is it in 
uh, undefinable you know, je ne sais quoi, and I don't know quite what? Um, I think it depends on the, the Jackie that you're trying to define, you know, because there were so many Jackies along the way. And when people ask me, what was Jackie like? I always sort of go back to questioning them. And my question back is specifically at what period of her life are you talking about? Because the wonderful thing about biography is that you get to reflect back to the reader a point that they can actually understand in their own lives, which is that nobody is one thing throughout their lifetime. People change. Hopefully, we, you and I, are not the same person right now that we were 10 years ago. And hopefully, 10 years from now, we will not be the same as we are right now in this moment. The goal, of course, is to be better. <laughs> sometimes, it, sometimes it doesn't work out that way, but that's the goal for most people. Um, Jackie was a very different woman when she was in the White House than she was when she was married to Aristotle Onassis. <clears throat> she was a very different woman uh, when I met her in the 1980s at Doubleday than she was in the 70s very different in the 1990s than she was in the 80s. And, uh, and I think that if you read my book, um, you get to understand, you know, that, as I said, we are not all just one thing. We, we change, we grow. Um, and the journey, I think, is what makes biography so important. You know, when JFK, President Kennedy, died, Jackie was quoted as saying, you know, now he is a legend when he much rather would have been, he wanted to be a man, not a legend. And I think that that's true of Jackie as well. You know, she's a legend when all she really wanted to be was a woman. And the point of my book is to tell the story um, of her womanhood, you know, the humanity of Jackie. A few points. Uh I've never considered this, but do you think that's true? Do you think that's more than a than a pretty epigram that that John F. Kennedy didn't really want to be a legend? Do you think of the way in which he was brought up, especially by Joseph Kennedy? What do you? How do you think he would have replied to that? The patriarch. Do you think that he would have seen um, his son as having been a, merely a man as a success, or do you think he would have wanted a legend? The, you know, the patriarch Joseph Kennedy wanted not for his children to be legendary, but for them to be public servants, you know, to, he, he wanted them to give back, uh, to be of service. And, you know, they were, they had money, they had privilege, they had power, they had, they had everything going for them, but he wanted them to not um, relax into into that lifestyle that they had, but he wanted them to to grow and to give back and to be and to be to be something worthwhile in, in this world. And so I think that JFK, you know, never thought of himself as as wanting to be anything more than a, a very good public servant. Um, you know, the funny thing about tragedy is that it's it's very myth making. You know, tragedy takes 
humanity almost right out the window in many in many cases because when a tragedy occurs people focus on the tragedy as opposed to the life prior to the tragedy and and i do think that uh i didn't write this in my book because it's something that i came to during the course of my book tour uh, but i think that one of the reasons for jackie's sort of the fascination about jackie really has to do with that that one week um after jfk's assassination when she was so strong and courageous for the country and the you know she never wanted to be america's widow she said that many times she wanted to grow past that moment but i think that it's because of that moment that we have this fascination about her, her life because it's, you know there are a lot there have been lots of first ladies um but we don't have and jackie was only there for a short period of time but we don't actually have the same sort of fascination about Lady Bird Johnson or about Betty Ford or Nancy Reagan or even Michelle Obama. As much as you know, as much as we uh, love Michelle Obama, we don't think of her as being enigmatic. You know, we don't think of her as being, you know, uh, hard to understand. You know, and I think that a lot of that has to, a lot of that has to do with the public's perception of Jackie being so courageous and brave during that one week after the assassination and our wondering how did, how she did that and what that was like for her. Yeah. And, and you cover that, uh, I think thoroughly in certainly in your latest book and in all of your books. Um, now it's, it's funny you mentioned that how she stands out, sort of above and beyond all the other first ladies. In our minds, I think we, we hold certain ideas or forms against which, or in this case, against whom we measure and judge all other uh, things of its kind or persons of its kind or of its class. Now, do you think that Jackie Kennedy is the, is the beau ideal of, an American first lady of what that first lady should be. Is she the perfect example to which first ladies should try to aspire and, and maybe conform? I, I think that's a good question, Dan. And I think I, I would say no, because I, I think that the job changes with the times. I think she was the perfect first lady for her time you know, the early 1960s. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, the first lady of that particular time uh, wasn't as publicly involved in policy. Um, she, you know, she, she found a, a thing to do that was her mandate at the, at, as first lady, which was the important restoration of the White House. And every first lady since Jackie has had her own mandate um, which is, you know, which I think is, is part of Jackie's influence on first ladies. But I think that since Jackie, the feminist movement in the 1970s changed women in many ways, not the least of which was what they felt should be their contribution to society. And 
thereby their con the contribution of a first lady to the country changed as well in the 1970s and through the ages to this present moment. Now, some women, some first ladies, you know, sort of adhered to the Jackie Kennedy philosophy of not being overtly vocal about politics and about policy. Certainly, Melania Trump falls into that category. I think it's safe to say that we kind of don't really know what Melania Trump felt about too many things in the same way that we don't really know what Jackie felt about too many things in, in politics. But Michelle Obama was much more overt in her thinking. And I think that, you know, there are a lot less questions about Michelle Obama's politics than there are about Melania Trump's politics. We all know that first ladies are loyal to their husbands and we all know that they generally agree with them, right? But I think that what we're talking about here are, are the more, uh, the nuances of how they present that to the public. And the first lady of the 1960s st stood by her, her man, her husband, without being terribly vocal about her own private thoughts about his policies. As, uh, as an American, would you prefer a more enigmatic, impenetrable first lady to one who's more open and, and more overt about her political positions? Um, I, I don't know that it has to do with being a, an American as much as it has to do with, you know, sort of a personal preference of how you would like to see women in society. And personally, I, I, I want to know what the first lady is thinking. You know, I, I, I want, I think it's important to know what women are thinking, just generally speaking, let alone somebody in that position and that powerful position. You see, the, the job of first lady, Dan, is so interesting because first of all, you don't get paid for it, right? Like there's no first lady salary, but it's hard work. You know what I mean? And you are, you are on the front lines and people are critical and, watching and they expect you to be a certain way and they but yet they don't know what that way is because there's no job description for first lady and you have to kind of carve out your own version of first lady and and, and i think that you know you it it, it 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 depends what you bring to to the table you know i think that melania trump brought to the table a uh sort of a uh, a privacy, uh, a uh, maybe a, a secrecy, you know, uh, a quality that was not one that was you were going to be able to penetrate. Whereas Michelle Obama came into the White House more open and wanting to be understood and being expressive. And so they, they were two very different first ladies. I think that Jackie... Uh, is more in line with Melania Trump, who, by the way, I've been, I interviewed Melania Trump four times in, in my career. So I, I kind of have an idea of, of what she's like. And when I think of Jackie, I think in terms of um, sort of the, you know, the guarded, um, careful version of the first lady 
which was very much like Melania Trump, but very much unlike Michelle Obama. Yeah, it's actually refreshing to hear you talk about Melania in this way, um, because she, I think it's uncontroversial to say that she was rather unfairly treated by the media during her or her husband's tenure. Um, but it's it's interesting to note. I mean, her she is a quite highly accomplished woman and, and certainly skillful. And talking about all the languages that Cleopatra possessed, Melania certainly is <laughs> uh, polylingual. And I think to her prior career as a model, and it's interesting. I mean, the the point of a model is to to walk and to look beautiful, and and not really to be heard, or at least traditionally, that's that was the idea. So, I wonder if some some of that reticence wasn't a uh, sort of the result of that career and and her. Um, I wouldn't say unfamiliarity with English, but uh, you know, being uh, an immigrant to this country, maybe that caused her to be a little bit more reserved, uh, but maybe that's also just her personality type. Um, and maybe I'm just overthinking it all, but I think it's fascinating that you were able to sit down with her for, for so many interviews. Tell me in the future, are you planning to do a biography of her? I'm not planning it, but I think it's a great idea. And I think that's I, an un untapped, I think, untapped well. Yeah. I think so too. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I, I, I'm fascinated by her, um, and I think that, uh, and I think you're right. You know, I think that she wasn't fairly treated, but I think a, a lot of that has to obviously has to do with her husband, and the you know the sort of the divide in this country relating to her husband and to politics, just uh, you know, generally speaking. Sure. And she was um, sort of, you know, she was affected by all of that and viewed through the lens of all of that. I, when I interviewed her, I thought she was fantastic. I thought she was, you know, warm and gracious and uh, smart and eloquent. She had a lot to say, but I also felt that she was a very private person. And like Jackie, you know, when you, when you are a private person thrown into a public arena, that, is often an adjustment that you can't make as much as you try, you know, and uh, you are who you are. Your personality is what it is. And you can, you can maybe act a certain way for a certain period of time, but you can't pull it off for four years, right? <laughs> Eventually who you are is going to come out. And right. Jackie, Jackie was, yeah, Jackie was very private. And I think that so is Melania Trump. Yeah, especially with that amount of exposure and and the paparazzi, and you know, it's it's impossible to conceal your true self for that amount of time. Um, now, of course, pop, you know, the, the journalistic um, sort of um, um, approach was a little bit different back in the day. Was, I think it was a little bit more discreet. I, I I think, especially when some of the presidential peccadillos were were involved, <laughs> um, as they really aren't today. Um, so it might have been a little bit easier as a private person to retain some of that privacy back then. Now, I mean, it's, gee, it's, it's got to be impossible. And, and I certainly sympathize for anyone who's put in that position because, you know, as the, as the, the spouse of someone who seeks high political office, it might not exactly be what you imagined it would be. It might not be what you wanted. I mean, you talk about this in relation to even... Uh, 
Maria Shriver and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in another one of your books. That wasn't really a future that she imagined being the, the first lady of a, of a governor of a huge and influential state. But she, you know, uh, quit her career in, in broadcasting and, and did that. And I think that's honorable. Of course, maybe some of Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> um, infidelities weren't quite as honorable, uh, but um, that's a different matter altogether. Let, let me go back, though, into your history. Um, at what age did you first learn about Jackie? Uh, I mean, you were probably a child around the time of JFK's presidency. So um, what, what do you remember? What were your earliest impressions of this, of this president and of his first lady and our first lady? I, I actually don't really have memories of Jackie of when I was from when I was a child. Um, I was obsessed with music and Motown um, and the Supremes and all Ed, uh, Diana Ross. And I mean, th nothing existed in my world uh, but soul music when I was a kid. Um, certainly not politics. And 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 I think that my first memory of really wondering about Jackie was, you know, probably when I was in my 20s and I would have conversations with my mom about the women who married into the Kennedy family, Jackie, Ethel, and Joan. Jackie being JFK's wife, Ethel being Bobby's wife, and Joan being Ted's wife. And we used to, my mom used to wonder about them because these were three women who were very different, who married into this powerful family, but yet nobody really seemed to pay attention to the fact that they had this in common, that they had this, this bond. And I used to discuss this with my mom, and she was always fascinated by that. And that is, many years later, I wrote that book, you know, Jackie Ethel Joan, Women of Camelot, which, we, which was a New York Times bestseller for me and which was a, a television miniseries. And the reason I wrote that book was specifically because of those conversations with my mom. When we were, my mother, my mother would say, "What do you think Jackie's relationship is like with Ethel? How does Joan? How do Ethel and Joan get along? You know, what, what what's Jackie's relationship with Joan? I mean, it was like a, a, all it was all that sort of conversation that we had no answers to. We just wondered about, and so my, that's really my first interest in Jackie. I think had to do with those conversations with my mom. And then in, 19, in the 1980s, when I picked up the phone, and it was her, Jacqueline, Jacqueline Onassis. Um, and I remember thinking, well, I'm not even quite sure that this is really her because I'm not even quite sure I know what she sounds like, right? I mean, I'm not 100% sure I know what she sounds like. And I thought it was my sister playing a practical joke on me. And I said this. I said this to Jackie. I said, "I said, I said, uh, is this really you, or is this my sister?" And she said, "No, this is this is really me." You know, whom so you also whom you also encountered in an elevator, correct, at the publishing house. Well, after that conversation, and what during that conversation, Jackie asked if I would be interested in writing a book about Diana Ross, and I turned her down because I just didn't think that I could possibly do such a thing. I was a magazine reporter, uh, a newspaper reporter, and um, 
and I was used to writing, you know, 1200 word articles and I couldn't imagine writing a book of hundreds of thousands of words and having Jackie Onassis be involved. The whole thing was just more than I could handle at that age. And I was, I was in my twenties and um, I turned her down, but then the magazine that I was working for went out of business and I went home for Christmas uh, and I told my mom, I said, you know what, I don't know what I'm going to do because the magazine I work for went out of business. I have no job. I have no money. Maybe I need to move back home to Philadelphia from Los Angeles. And my mother said those those words that you never think you're going to hear your mom say, which was, which were, you should call Jackie Kennedy, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, I've never heard that sentence before, you know? <laughs> And so I did. And Dan, believe it or not, back then in the 1980s, you could call a number at Doubleday and say, Jacqueline Onassis, please. The woman would say, please hold. You'd hold for a minute. And then you'd hear this voice, hello. And it would be her. Right? And I was or, blown away or, by or that. Your, or your sister playing a prank on you. Or, yeah. my, or my sister, one or the other. But it was her. you know. And I said, look, I really want to do this book now would you you know how do you feel about that she sent for me to come to new york and then that's how i had conversations with her and that's when i got to know her was during the sort of the discussions uh, about that book which was my first book and it was about diana ross and it was for doubleday oh it's an extraordinary story um wh one thing that i'll say is never underestimate your your mother's wisdom, your mother's insight and, and her kind of intuition to, to lead you to success. <laughs> I know I, I do occasionally to my detriment. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that you that you followed her advice and, and followed Jackie to, to Doubleday. And, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of Motown as well uh, and certainly of Diana Ross. So I'm, I'm looking forward eventually to, to picking up that book it's it's interesting though that you note how you were accustomed to, to to putting out articles in a certain way, and now you're like as I mentioned, your books are massive, and I don't mean this to dissuade any potential readers from picking them up because they read so fluidly and so easily um, that you know four hundred pa pages pass very quickly. Um, how did you make that transition? How did you make that leap? Uh, you know, as a writer going from you know, relatively constrained medium to a sort of a an expansive one well again this has to do with 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 my experience with jackie because my first book about diana ross was hundreds of thousands of words i mean it was thousands of pages you know because i i had a lot to say and i just didn't i figured it's a book so i get to say it all you know like i mean sky's the limit it's a book right I turned this thing in and it was like this thick. And Jackie said to me, you know, this is way too much. You are just, you know, out of your mind if you think this will ever be published. And she said, let me give you some advice. And this was her advice and it, and, and it has stuck with me and it continues to stick with me with every book. She said to me, there are a lot of stories in the big city, you need to find your story. You need to tell your story and tell it well and forget the rest of them. And that is what I've done with my with my books. If how, you read my new book, I was gonna yeah, say, if you read my new book, uh, 
Jackie Public Private Secret, you'll find that it has a specific point of view and it has, um, and, and it's a specific story that I'm telling, but it's not every single story that there is about Jackie. You know, it, it, there are lots of stories about Jackie that aren't in that book because they're in other books or they're very well known or they're just, you know, they're, they don't, they don't illuminate her in a, in a specific way. I, just, I found my stories and I hope I told them well, but I tried not to tell every single story that there is. Yeah, isn't it somewhat poetic that by following her advice and telling your story, you ultimately told her story and you told it in a couple iterations. Now, it is it, it, it is ironic because, in, in, you know, you're right. I mean, in Jackie Ethel Joan, Women of Camelot, I told the story of her relationship with her sisters-in-law. And after Camelot, the, the, the book after Camelot, I told the story of her relationships with family members after JFK and Bobby were gone. In the Kennedy heirs, I told the story of her relationship to her children. In Jackie, Janet, and Lee, it was about her relationship with her mother and sister. And in this book, it's about the entire the entire profile of her life. So you're right. I I, I think she'd be proud of the fact that I took her advice to heart and and manifested in five different books. Oh, absolutely. And have become, I think, indisputably her authoritative voice, posthumously, her, her biographer um, par excellence. I have to applaud you. And I noticed this while I was reading and I, I read a lot. Um, I first read your newest book and then I went back to uh, Jackie, uh, Janet, Ethel, and I'm sorry, Ethel Joan maybe, and then uh, Camelot. And I was expecting as I did so to, with the subsequent books to just kind of scan through the, the Jackie section and you know, not really bother with it having already read Jackie, uh, Public Private Secret. But still, the narrative is engrossing, and I don't. I don't I, again, I have to tip my hat to you because um, still, you were somehow able to capture my attention and tell about these little stories that may have gone unmentioned previously that really helped to fill out her picture. So, uh, bravo to you! And again, that's why I encourage everybody listening not only to to pick up this latest book, which is I think about as comprehensive a study of a of a person, a contemporary person that you could want, but also the other works and not to, not to bypass the Jackie sections because they're just as illustrative of her, um, of, her, of her life and who she was. Now, let me ask, having studied her so closely and having studied the family so closely through these years, have you suffered any sort of disenchantment with them or with the family? Uh, now, of course, Jackie's conduct throughout almost the entirety of her life was unobjectionable on the whole. Um, but one certainly can't say the same about the Kennedy boys, you know, Jack, Bobby, and, and Ted. Um, yeah, so, you know, if you look close enough and long enough at anyone's past, of course, you're going to find disagreeable things. Um, as you've studied these people throughout all this time, have you found enough things to kind of lessen your regard for them? Wow, it's a really good question um, that maybe I think I've never been asked before. 
And I think that the answer to that is I'm, <clears throat> I may be disenchanted with, with a character at a certain point in that person's story, but as a whole, I'm never disenchanted with, with my characters because I, I just understand, I believe that everybody is doing the best that he or she can with what they have to work with. You know, I think that there are very few totally venal people in, in this world. I think that most people, and certainly the ones I've written about, you know, they have their flaws and they have their issues and problems along the way. But I do believe that the Kennedy men, for instance, were doing the best that they could in that moment, whatever that moment was. And that if they fell short, it was because they just didn't have whatever it took to meet to meet a higher standard in that particular moment. But then later on, they may quit themselves in some other way, you know? And I think that that's what we do as human beings. I, I think that for us to stand in judgment and me as a biographer, for me to stand in judgment of, of somebody that I'm writing about, it's kind of ridiculous because I mean, I'm, I'm in Starbucks, right? Working on a book, right? <laughs> At four o'clock in the morning over a cup of coffee. And I have, the audacity to stand in judgment of President John F. Kennedy while I'm sitting in Starbucks writing this book? No, come on. I am a chronicler of human emotion and day-to-day -day humanity. And if you're going to do that for a living, you can't be appalled every time somebody doesn't live up to the standards that you may have set for them that are just so unrealistic and you have no right to even have these expectations of these people who are long gone and who uh, are in, in the case of, of the Kennedy's public servants who have the, who have all sorts of pressures on them that you can't even really imagine. So no, to answer your question, I, I, I've never been disillusioned by any of my, my characters or many of my books. Uh, it was especially, complicated writing about Frank Sinatra, for instance, because that's a very complicated personality who did, you know, did quite a few things along the way that I certainly wouldn't have done and uh, would never do in my own life. But I don't know, I, I weirdly understood him because he was Italian American and he reminded me of every uncle I ever had who, who fell off the beaten path at one time or another but was a good person doing the best he could at in that moment, you know? So I urge people when they read books of mine and when they read history books, just generally to stay away from judgment and lean toward grace. And because I think grace is important when you're trying to understand complicated, flawed people, judgment is easy. Grace is more of a challenge. I think that's such an important lesson to which we all need to adhere. You're absolutely right, because I've, I've read some more uh, tendentious biographies. I can think of one recently that I read about George, uh, dub, uh, the second George Bush, George uh, W. Bush. George W. Yeah, George W. Bush. And it, it, was, it was very unsympathetically drawn. I, I can't quite remember. I think it was... Gene Smith, I think he was in a, a Canadian biographer. He did a great work on on James Marshall, but I, in this particular work, it was it was quite obviously um, uh, biased. There was there was an obvious animus, and there was judgment. 
in your works, you you withhold that judgment, and I think admirably, because as a writer, you can approach Ted Kennedy's conduct at Chappaquiddick quite severely, but you have the have the control as a writer to to present the facts and leave it up to the reader to to determine exactly how he feels. Now, the reader might then be, be uh, induced to, to judge in one way or another. And it's difficult to read that account and not come to kind of a harsh conclusion uh, regarding his, his behavior that, that evening and then for the next 10 hours <laughs> into the next day. Um, but you certainly refrain from that. And again, that's, that's laudable. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that through all of these, you know, exhaustive works that you've conducted on these people in this family, that you've not quite become disillusioned. And I hope that doesn't happen because I can imagine really penetrating the lives of these people. You can be susceptible to that when you kind of hold them up as idols or, uh, you know, as stars that you, that are beloved by everybody and especially by you. Um, once you really start scrutinizing them under the microscope, you know, all of our pockmarks become much clearer, and all of our all of our sins become evident. Well, with, well, I with think um, I wanted to, I wanted to say on that on that point. <clears throat> I think a book, a biography, reflects the author as much as it does the subject. And when I read a book like the one that you just described about about W, that is that is un unsympathetic, judgmental. Um, cynical. Um, what I take away from that is not so much that W is that way, as much as I kind of suspect the author is that way in his own life. <clears throat> because we bring to these subjects who we are as biographers, how we were raised, and our worldview, and how we treat people around us. And I can't help it, and I might be wrong, but I read books like that, and my first impulse is, wow, this guy, you know, like I, I, I interviewed w, George W. Bush, by the way, and I was not a fan of his presidency. To be honest with you, I was not a fan. But when I interviewed this guy, he was so great. And I was like, oh my God, this is the person that I really would love to just have a friendship with, you know, like this is the guy that you could sit down and have a beer with and he's the nicest guy in the world, you know? So I just think that, you know, that you, you have to, you have to um, find a way to understand the most complex people in a, in a way that is sympathetic. And if you can't do that, if you, if you, if your book is going to be riddled with judgment, then I'm not sure that it does you as a writer the kind of service that you think it's doing because you may think that you're you're being tough and objective and critical where where need be, but I guarantee you, your reader is thinking, "Wow, this guy's kind of a jerk," you know, and that's what your reader is thinking, not about the subject but about you, the biographer. And unless, unless that's the image that you want to put out there, I think you have to be a little more careful about how you write stories about complex people. Yeah, and, and you, I think, provide the example of how to do it and to do it in a way that is uncontaminated by any judgment. So you've definitely succeeded. And again, I think you've set 
quite a quite a good example for all those who are hoping to follow in that path. And I think in this age, a lot of biographers feel almost compelled to to write a more tendentious work um, because things are so divisive politically. Again, another reason why your work was so refreshing because it was so even-handed, so thoroughly and well-researched, but also not at all tendentious, not at all biased. You can tell that you have not only a great deal of learning, not only a, a great deal of wisdom about uh, knowledge about these people, but also a, a commitment to the craft <laughs> that you're that you're pursuing. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, and it's again, I can't. I can't thank you enough for making that such an enjoyable reading experience. I want to turn, though, to kind of a lighter question. <laughs> so Jackie, of course, was married twice. We, of course, know her marriage to John Fitzgerald Kennedy and then subsequently to Aristotle Onassis, the Greek billionaire. Neither was a perfect marriage. Uh, neither was happy. Maybe neither was a union built purely on the foundation of love. And sometimes that's just how it is in life. But if you were to play cosmic matchmaker with the power to fix Jackie up with anyone at any time, with whom would you do so and why? That's a good question. And I have, I have a, an easy answer. I wish she had ended up with Jack Warnicky. You know, I, the, the architect with whom she had a relationship from 1964 to 1967. Um, in my interviews with him, I thought he was such a great guy. And he loved her so much. And he would have, I believe, treated her the way that she deserved to be treated. And I, I, I sort of felt myself rooting for him in this book in Jackie public private secret in the sense that I felt like wow I wish that this could end differently I wish that that they would end up together but you know what's interesting is that they did remain friends all the way to the end of her life and Jack Warnicky felt like perhaps that was a better situation than if they had married because if they had married, perhaps they might have divorced and then they would have lost that friendship. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I told Jack, you know, wow, I wish you had ended up with her. He, you know, he laughed and he said, you know, I, 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 he wished it as well. But he was also very grateful for the fact that they were able to remain friends all the way to her death. They became romantically involved, as I said, in 1964. She died in 1994. It's 30 years, you know, of a, of a friendship. They, they both were married to other people. They both kept coming back. They were not romantically involved from 1967 onward, but they were close friends from 1967 until her death. And, I, and so to answer your question, I wish she had ended up with him. I liked, I liked him for her. And I think although it occupies only a small portion of the book, I think a lot of readers will feel the same way. And again, it's not to say that your, your bias toward him is, is uh, manifest in that section, but I felt the same way. I, I read your description of him and their relationship, and it just seemed right. It just seemed like the match that was meant to be, but for whatever reason, didn't happen. Um, and it's saddening to, to realize that it was very close, but I'm, I'm glad that they were able to 
have such a long, enduring, and deep friendship for so many years. Um, I will say though, there, there's too many Jacks and Johns in these and Jackies in in these. I don't know how you keep them all straight. <laughs> That's funny you say that because my sister said the same thing when she was reading this book. She was like, oh, my gosh, everybody is named Jack. Everybody's named Jackie, Jack. There's, oh, there's John Jackson. And she was like, I think you need to do like a flow chart. Truly what you need track. and to go back to Plutarch, you almost, you, you almost need one of those, you know, those pedigrees, those family trees at the at the beginning of the book to, to branch out to all the different Jacks and Johns and Roberts and juniors. <laughs> because... Uh, yeah, you go from Jack Black, you know, Bouvier to uh, yeah. Black Jack Bouvier to, you know, um, you know, all the John Juniors and the Jacks and the Jackies. Um, but but no, he's a different Jack unrelated to the Kennedys, but but just really a, 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 an exemplary figure. Is he still alive? No, unfortunately, he's not. He's gone. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I had the great fortune of editing his uh, autobiography. Um, a couple of years ago, um, his daughter, uh, Margot Warnicky, re reached out to me. She knew I had interviewed uh, her father several times. She had read, you know, my, my writings about him, and she reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in doing this. And I was like, wow. You know, I, I had never edited a book before. I've only written books. Uh, but it just felt like... It felt to me like Jack would want me to, huh. and it felt to me like Jackie would want it, would have wanted me to, you know. And I just felt their presence so strongly in that job. I spent a lot of time with that book. Um, it hasn't come out yet. I hope it comes out one day soon. Um, and I think he is a wonderful man. And I think that when you read this book, you really get a strong sense of of, of Jack Warnicky. And it's a conversation that uh, Jack had with Jackie. Um, around the time of her 60th birthday that gave us the title of the book public private secret huh. because uh he was having a conversation with jackie and he was sort of he was asking her a question about aristotle onassis who um she had chosen over jack in 1968 she had to make a choice between onassis and warnicky she chose onassis many years later he asked her you know what was that about? Like, what did you see? And it doesn't seem to me to Jack, he said, it doesn't seem to me that that was a perfect match for you. And, you know, she, she said to him, her quote was, Oh, Jack, you know me, I have three lives, public, private, and secret. In other words, what she was saying was back off. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so when I heard that, that quote on the tape on my interview with him, I thought, my gosh, what a great title for a book. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, getting back to her enigmatic quality, her impenetrability, and also the, the the multiple lives that she led, like you said, you know, there are these segments. And I think the fact that she entered into public life at so young an age can't be overlooked. I'm 31 years of age. She she became first lady at at my age, and I can't even conceive of that. It's extraordinary to me. Um, and like you said, with the the premature death of her first husband, and then you know evolving into these next stages, she certainly had to maintain that public private secret um, 
tri, I don't know what you would call it, trilemma. I mean, she was kind of caught in the middle of it and, and had to navigate, had to balance these three parts of her world or, or else it would just collapse on her. Um, it's just extraordinary. So we've talked a little bit about being a biographer. Um, it's, a, it's a craft uh, about which the British philosopher A.C. Grayling said the following. Just bear with me one moment. Good biography requires the psychologist's eye, the historian's nose, and the novelist's feel for narrative. He goes on to say it is a form of highly organized gossip, and the more private corners of the biographer that the biographer can wriggle into, especially the dark ones, the better the resulting book. So I want to ask you, Randy, which of those parts, the psychologist's eye, the historian's nose, or the novelist's feel for narrative is strongest in you? And through the years, to which have you devoted the most training to improve? Wow, well, first of all, <clears throat> that, I, I want that quote. You I'm need to, to send charging. me. All, <laughs> I'm going to start charging for these quotes. I know. I, you need to send me all your all these quotes because these are these are incredible quotes that I've never heard before, and that is so true of biography. Um, and it and, and for me personally, it's dependent on. I mean, I've had a long career, been writing biographies for thirty years, and I at, at different mo moments along the way, you know felt the pressure of you know trying to be historically accurate while at the same time trying to find a, a narrative that was compelling while at the same try time trying to psychologically understand complex and flawed people and <clears throat> i think it wasn't until maybe um me I, I think probably maybe around the time of the secret life of Marilyn Monroe uh, years ago that I was able to find a way to put the, just put all that together in, in, a, in a way that was comfortable for me. You know, I am not a, uh, a political biographer. There are people who write political books that, that that's not me. You know, my, my strength is telling human stories, about political people, not so much unpacking their politics in my books. You get a, you get a little bit of that because you need to you need to in order to understand who they are as politicians. But I think that my strong suit has to do with psychology and um, and narrative, and in trying to tell a, a big sweeping story in a way that uh, makes people. Uh, want to turn the pages and become engrossed in it. The the biggest compliment that I can receive, and I've gotten it so much from this particular book, Jackie, Public Private Secret. In fact, I just heard it this morning from somebody, and 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 what she said to me was, "I was sorry when it ended. I didn't want it to end." And she said, I knew it was coming to an end. And then I started reading slower, you know, and she said, I, and I, and, and I would parse out the chapters one at a time so that I wouldn't get to the end as quickly as I felt I would get to it. If I was reading as fast as I had been reading the previous chapters, yeah. in other words, she was, 
she was divvying out the chapters so that she would be able to prolong the experience. Oh my gosh, I mean, can you imagine as a biographer what it's like to hear a compliment like that? Yeah. You know, and I, and I think that if I can do that to, you know, for a, a, a for a subject that's been written about a hundred times, there are, I have on my bookshelf probably a hundred biographies of Jackie. If I can be a person who can still make you want to read about her um, and find ways to keep that entertaining as well as, you know, in, uh, historically accurate. That's the dream right there, you know? So um, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's how I feel about biography. It does, I think it does. Uh, and allow me, if you will, to, to echo that reader's sentiment. I felt the same way and I, I didn't realize just how early uh, Jackie left us. I didn't know that she, she perished at so young an age, much like oh, so many of the, of, the, of the Kennedys. So um, the, the end of the book kind of hit me abruptly. I was, <laughs> yes. I, that, that reader had some uh, foreknowledge, I think that I was, I was unequipped with. So, uh, well, I, I, have to, I have to say, Dan, you know, the ending of the book was hard for me. Um, and it's and it's been hard for for some of my readers. I mean, I've heard this quite a few times uh, from people who are very sad and even upset at the end of the book, and they wish that I had continued, you know, and given more detail to the funeral and to <clears throat> you know to things that happened after Jackie died, you know, and and I think that what they wanted from me was more so that the ending wouldn't be so blunt and and affecting and 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 when i wrote that ending i showed it to a few people and they were like wow you know this is so sad and it's just so not like do you really want to end on this note and i thought you know i think that if you have lived with this character in, in this book this true life character through all this time that you have a relationship with this person and that's why you're sad when this person dies just as you would be sad in real life if a person you knew died and for me as a biographer to try to sugarcoat that or make that easier for you is not really i think uh, uh my job or it's not really what i would want to do for jackie because, you know, just as Jackie felt that JFK deserved her sadness, I feel that way about Jackie. I think that she deserves us to be sad at the end of the book when she dies, especially after, you know, there's a, as I wrote in the book, this experimental cancer treatment that had been on the table and they were thinking about doing. And she died on the day that she was planning to go down to Texas to have this treatment. It's all very, very sad, and I think that it should be sad, you know. And, and but it is interesting that you you came to the book without knowing that that was going to happen, you know. Uh, so it's it's interesting, you know. A lot of people uh, obviously know exactly when Jackie died, and as they're reading the book, they know that the end is coming. But if you're if you're not real familiar with her story, you really don't know how it's going to turn out. And so I I can understand how that would feel very abrupt. Yeah, for and I don't mean to say that it was unwelcome, the how abrupt it was, but for for younger readers, um, 
you know, we're just going along. We don't really know exactly how her story ends. Maybe others do, but I was unaware of it. And, you know, here I am just picturing her in her pink, beautiful pink uh, outfits and the white gloves and the hat and, you know, thinking everything will be merry for all time. And of course, you know, then you, you come to her diagnosis and the rapidity to which, uh, with which it just ravaged her and uh, not uh, lymphoma and how quickly she succumbed to it um, is just, you know, it's just extraordinary. And no, I, I, I think you ended it perfectly, not to disclose the ending, um, but I think no other way would have been suitable. Um, there's something cathartic about it, right? You mentioned tragedy. In Greek tragedy, to bring Plutarch back into this, <laughs> in Greek tragedy, uh, there's not a postscript where you talk about, you know, how, you know, the, the progeny of Oedipus lived on a, a happy life. No, I mean, the point is, is to be purged of your of your emotions in that instance because it is so gripping it is so overwhelming the emotions are just uncontrollable uh, i'm not not to say that you'll start bawling your eyes out when you read the the ending to your book but it's important to to capture that tragic element and not to try to um, sugarcoat it or, or or alter it in any way you need to reflect nature and history as it as it happens and i think you do that marvelously now, you've been extraordinarily generous with your time, but there is one question I want to ask, and I, I can't go without asking it, and it's about your family. So much of so much of your work, especially on the Kennedys, is, is kind of all-absorbing. We talked about this earlier, how we need a, a family tree simply to keep track of all these various members, all named Jack or Jackie or some variation thereof. Um, Central to the Jackie story is is family. And I think central to your story as a writer is also family. Um, repeatedly, you dedicate your works to your your mother and your father, of whom you made mention earlier, um, Rocco and, and Rosemary Tarabarelli. And in your your acknowledgments, I think you list time and again some of your family members. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about about your family members, especially your mother and father. You told us a little bit about your mother um, and maybe the influence and the enduring influence that they uh, have had on you. Oh, thank you for asking because people generally don't ever ask about my history. And I think that, as I said, you know, you bring to your book who you are as a writer and how you treat people um, often has to do with how you were raised. And how you treat people is often reflected in your writing. Uh, I just had the great fortune of being raised by two wonderful people, you know, who were just so uncritical of their children and so supportive. I could never have become a writer if it wasn't for the fact that my my father let me go. You know, like I I... I was 18 years old and I was just out of high school. <clears throat> I did not want to go to college. I wanted to go to California to work for the Supremes. What kind of what kind of what kind of kid is that? Right. My dad, <laughs> you know, I, I remember that the moment I sat down in front of my father and I said, Look, Dad, I don't want to go to college. I want to go to California and work for the Supremes. And my heart was in my throat because I didn't know how that was going to be taken by my dad. My dad looked at me and he said, when are you packing your bags? 
Those were his words to me. He wanted me to go. If he had told me not to go, I wouldn't have gone, Dan. There is no way I would have defied my father. I would not have gone. And I think that when you have that kind of support from your family, from your parents, you know, you there, there's no, there's no, there's no limit to what you can achieve. Of course, my mom was heartbroken. She didn't want me to leave. And I remember my dad saying to her, look, he's not going to Vietnam. He's going to California to work for the Supremes. <laughs> How bad can it be? Right? <laughs> little, little did he know. <laughs> yeah, little did he know that they would break up after I was there for only about a year, you know, and then I was on my own. But I, to answer your question, I could not have done any, any of what I did and what I've achieved in my life that had it not been for my parents every step along the way when I was a kid, encouraging me and my siblings to, you know, go for our dreams and to, and to not be limited by any, any external force, you know, and I tell this to people all the time on my social media pages, you know, that uh, you, you can achieve whatever it is that you set out to achieve and to please not listen to other people's opinions of your dreams, unless they are, entirely in every way encouraging because the one discouraging word could be the thing that could hold you back if you let it and i always tell people don't let it happen you know you've got to you've got to achieve everything that you set out to achieve and the one way to do that is just go and do it people ask me all the time you know how do i become a writer and my answer is simply write you just have to write every day you have to write you know my books are by the way i don't outline my books uh for me it's a, it's a numbers game as much of as as much as it's a story game i know that i need to write two hundred and fifty thousand words i know how much time i have to write the book i divide that time by how many words i need to write every day five days a week to meet a quota at the end of that week. If I don't meet that quota, then I have to write on weekends. If I meet that quota, I don't write on weekends. And eventually, if I meet all these quotas along the way, I will have 250,000 words. So that's how I write, you know, and, and, and people, I am not that guy to go to the beach and sit under the sun with, with a tablet. And, you know, I have, I'm surrounded by research tapes, books, files, all kinds of minutiae that I then to try to figure out how to turn that into a story. And it takes a lot of work ethic in order to be able to pull it off, you know, but I get that from my dad. My dad, to go back to my dad, was a painting contractor who ran his own business for, for 50 years, who got up in the morning very early and went to work, came home at the end of the day and he owned his own business. And my brother and I both uh, became the same kind of, of people, you know, who to be self-employed, running our own businesses um, and trying to, you know, figure out how to get from point A to point B. I've never had medical insurance covered by anybody. I've never had a paid holiday in my entire career. I've never had any benefits, Dan, never. I've never had any ever pay for anything of mine you know and that you know 
there's a lot of times when I was like, wow, I, I mean, what's it like to have a paid vacation? I sure would like to know, you know, I've never had that, you know, but on the other hand, I've been able to have an incredible career um, that I've been able to carve out for myself that I feel very blessed to be able to have done. Yeah. And with more to do <laughs> along, I think, and prolific future ahead of you as well. Uh, I think you Thank inherited you. your father's ability to rise early. I, I'm, I'm imagining you in, in the Starbucks at 4 a.m. And, and yes. he, uh, he's walking by with his <laughs> or driving by <laughs> with his uh, paint supplies en route to, the, to his next job. Uh, yes, <laughs> me, yes. I want to I throw a couple rapid fire questions at you, and then I think we'll conclude. My first rapid fire question, and I've just kind of come up with these as we've gone. The last great Motown song that you listened to, what was it? The last great Motown song I listened to was I Hear Symphony by uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes, which I just played moments before going on uh, the air today with you. And is there a song that really gets you in the right mindset to to write or do you do you forego any type of music before your before your writing process begins? Uh, there, there actually is not a song that that puts me, in, you know, in in any kind of writing or creative mode. But that said, all I do is listen to music all day long, and uh, and you know, um, it's hard for me to not have music on in the house. Um, and it's so funny because often when I go to other people's homes and they don't have music, and they don't have television on, but when they don't, when it's just quiet. I'm like, wow, how do you do this? Like, how do you, how do you do this? You know, and they come over to my house and they're like, how do you do this? There's music on in every single room, you know? So I'm, it's just I'm similar. I'm similar in that way. We would get along for that reason. I like, you know, every setting to be suffused by music, I, you know, any genre, any type. I just love it all around me. I do too. I mean, I always have music on, you know, the only time I don't have music on is when I'm doing an interview like this. Uh, and other than that, that there's, and, and I, and what I also like is I like to have different music playing in different rooms, you know? And, uh, and so as if, when you come to my house, as you walk through my house, you're, you're going to have different musical experience in every room, you know, in one room, you might, it might be country music and another room might be Motown. Another room might be pop, you know, it's just, uh, how I, uh, it's just how I, I how I am. And in which of those rooms do you like to spend the most time? With which with which genre? Well, lately, I, I have to say, I've I've been lately in the last couple of years, I've been really intrigued by country music, and uh, and I had never listened to country music before, uh, but lately I am just so sort of taken by people like Blake Shelton, um, and you know the country artists that um, you know that. I, I, I really feel, you know, have a, have something to say uh, that you know sort of matters and um, and sort of hits hits home for me. So uh, I'm I'm playing a lot of country music these days. As am I. I'm a sort of a new arrival to country, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's especially fun going back into the history and and not only listening to these more contemporary guys like like Blake Shelton, who's excellent, but also going and listening to Waylon Jennings and some of the old, you know, Dolly Parton and some of the really. Uh, um, and Glenn Campbell. I mean, Glenn yeah. Campbell, if you listen to Glenn Campbell, uh, you know, he's got a song called um, uh, Honey Come Back, it's called. 
and man if you play that song you know you just your heart just goes out to to him i mean that, that there's something about country music that just really can resonate if you put yourself in you know in that place yeah and it's not it's not i'm just writing that that song title down and it's not yeah not difficult to get into that place. I mean, some, there's such a, such deep sentiment in that music, and I just think it's it's amazing. Um, let's let me just ask one more question. The most fashionable or the most stylish first lady, maybe with the exception of Jackie Kennedy, to whom would you give that title? Um, I I would give that title to Melania Trump, in, in terms of you know fashion and, and style. Uh, she she is you know kind of flawless, you know. So I mean, I, whatever you think about Melania Trump, uh, you, that is a stylish woman, and um, and and also you know Michelle Obama, you know you you can't you can't beat her for for style. Um, I'll tell you who the first lady is that I that I've always been interested in writing about, and I haven't been able to get my publisher uh, to to be interested in this. Um, I'm fascinated by Pat Nixon, you know, huh. I, I, I just think that that is an interesting marriage. And I mean, imagine what she went through during Watergate. Like, I would love to know what, what that was like for her, you know, and a lot of people think that because of my status, you know, as a biographer and Jackie, you know, debuted at number three on the New York times list that I would be able to write about anybody that I wanted to write about. That's not the way it works. You know, the, the way it works is I have to pitch ideas to my publisher. And um, I would say eight out of every 10 ideas is rejected, you know, <laughs> and, and then the other two we fight over until we finally settle with one, you know, but somebody like, like uh, Mrs. Nixon, I think is a, an incredible story that, that maybe one day should be told. Oh, and I would absolutely consume that one, but I maybe shouldn't hold my breath for it. I, I there just certainly is an appetite, and I could tell you from this <laughs> from this man right here, <laughs> I would be totally <laughs> totally interested in reading that. Um, yeah, fascinating. I hope that I hope to see that come to fruition in the future. I do too. I do too. All right, and I want to end with the question with which I end almost every episode, and that is a question about the three transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, upon which, Randy, do you place the highest importance? Truth, beauty, or goodness? Well, I often say, Dan, that just because something is true doesn't, need, doesn't mean it needs to be known by everybody. And so I, I, that guides me a lot in the writing of my books. Just because something's true doesn't mean that you can understand all the nuances of that truth. And if I can't put that into the proper perspective and into the context that will make it totally understandable, then it's not going to be in a book of mine. So, and beauty is very, you know, passing and it's nice. And as if you read any of my books, I think you get a real sense of beauty in terms of, I'm big on what a person wears. I'm big on how they look. I'm big on jewelry. I'm big on fashion. You know, I'm, I, that, I, I think that's important. But that, that's kind of a transitory in a way, you know. And 
I think goodness is what really where I land. I, it's important to me to protect my subjects. It's important to me to um, be a champion for my subjects. And I am sort of the, the guy that I feel is responsible for bringing them to life for a whole new audience. And so in that respect, it's up to me to advocate for my subjects because I want you to love my subject by the time you finish the book. I think that's my goal, you know? And so I think that goodness is, is sort of an inherent part of, of advocating for somebody because you want only good for that person. And if you read my book about Jackie and you love her, so much that you're sad at the end when she's no longer with us, then I think I've done my job. You certainly have, because I walked away from not only that book, but your other books, very much not in love with Jackie, but, but loving her as, as she was. Um, and I think you succeeded. And I thank you thank for you. that. And I thank, thank you, you more, more for, for how generous you've been with your time. Um, so in this episode, we've covered so many interesting facets of her life, of your life, um, that I'll have to digest for a little while because it's just been so rich for me. And I hope it's been enjoyable for you as well. I know that you're coming at <laughs> to the end of a very long couple months of interviews promoting this wonderful book um, that I will take the opportunity right now to promote as well. Jackie, public, private, secret. It's a must read, even if you well, especially if you don't know much about Jackie or you think you know a little bit about Jackie uh, or you think, yeah, what's the point of reading about some first lady who lived and died many years ago? No, I, I urge you, get a copy, read it. Uh, you'll certainly read it again. And uh, also check out some of, other Rand, uh, some of Randy's other books that I think are indispensable, as I said earlier, and I truly do mean that. So Randy, again, thank you. I'll include links to, to Amazon or to you know local booksellers in the show notes below. You can certainly go anywhere for this book. As you said, it's a it's a chart topper. It's a, I think number three still uh, on the New York Times list, or, or maybe it's fallen a little bit, but certainly um, a good honorable mention and probably will be for quite some time. So I urge all my listeners and readers and and viewers and friends to to check it out. And uh, Randy, with that, I say thank you. And to all of you, thank you and farewell from Finneran's Wake.